Excited to be here this afternoon with you guys. We've got a uh, great song we're going to be going through. Um, just to give a re- quick recap, we are g- continuing our summer, summer sermon series in the Psalms. Uh, we've got just a few weeks left to go. And particularly, we're focusing on uh, Psalms that are written by David, who is basically responsible for half the Psalms that we have in the Bible. And as uh, we covered at the beginning of this study, the Psalms are unique and that they give us a voice for a lot of the things that we are feeling as God's people but don't quite know how to express to God. So if you're ever in a place where you're struggling to find words for the things that you're feeling deep inside, whether that's joy and excitement about what God has done in your life or whether it is a needing for grace and mercy and forgiveness or um, you have deep suffering and you're frustrated, whatever emotion is that you're feeling, the Psalms address those. And you can find these beautiful psalms that are prayers to God that give words to those things. They, give it, they help us to articulate um, our feelings to God. And today we'll be looking at Psalm 51, which I'm sure is, is pretty familiar to a lot of you. Uh, psalm 51 is a penitential psalm, which is kind of a fancy way of saying it is a psalm of, of repentance. Um, we did a, a, one of these psalms actually a couple weeks ago. John Colburn went through Psalm 32. And uh, this week, we're in Psalm 51. Um, and so what we're going to be focusing on is confession and forgiveness. So if you find yourself seeking forgiveness from God, if you find yourself full of guilt or shame over your sin, but you don't know quite how to get past it, then Psalm 51 is one for you. And it certainly is one for me. So here it is, Psalm 51. Let's read it together. It's also in your worship, God. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean." Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. 
Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you once again for a time to gather and proclaim your word. And especially today for Psalm 51. At times, it can be so difficult for us to articulate what our hearts feel. Our inadequacy, shame, guilt, we carry with us and don't know what to do with it. God, I pray that in this psalm, you would reveal to us the words to pray to you. Father, we need you. We need your abundant mercy. We need your steadfast love. And we need you to make us new again. Lord, help us to be broken over our sin. Help us to realize that we need you. God, would you take these words that I've prepared? God, would only the things that last be the things from you? Speak through your servant. Help us to hear what you have for us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So it has been noted uh, throughout this series this summer that a lot of these psalms that we're going through don't really have a lot of historical context, which can be really, um, really good for us as we're going through this to kind of put ourselves in the story. Um, and, and then we can kind of voice our own fears, our own uh, concerns, and, and put the psalm kind of in our own context. But in this particular psalm, it's an exception to that rule. Psalm 51 actually does have a very specific historical context, and it comes, from us, comes to us from 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Here we have the account of David wrapped up in a, uh, a downward spiral of sin, to say, say the least. So King David, he's in his palace. He's overlooking the city. And at a glance, he sees a beautiful woman far off in the distance. And he's up high, and he can, he's got a great vantage point, and he can see that she is bathing. And at that moment, he lusts after her. The woman's name is Bathsheba. And we see it right here in the introduction. He has Bathsheba brought to him, to his palace. And he lays with her, and he commits adultery. Bathsheba is a married woman. She's married to a man named Uriah, who happens to be away in battle, fighting for Israel, fighting for King David. And then he sends her back away. Moments later, or weeks later, months even, Bathsheba sends word to David that she is pregnant, that the baby is his. And David, like... So many of us, and all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, immediately think of how we can hide from our sin, how we can cover it up. So he, he devises a plan to make her pregnancy appear that it's from her husband Uriah. So he actually sends to get Uriah from battle, to leave all his brethren out there, to, to bring him home, to lay with his wife Bathsheba. Uriah in a, um, a moment of solidarity to his brethren who are out still fighting in battle, refuses to lay with his wife. And so David has to come up with a plan B now to cover up his sin. So he has Uriah sent back, but instead of 
his normal um, post, he sends Uriah to the front lines where he, is, he knows that he is in imminent danger and certain death. He effectively has Uriah killed. And then he quickly marries Bathsheba so that the pregnancy will appear to be legitimate. During this downward spiral of scandal, adultery, selfishness, pride, cover-up, murder, he's approached by the prophet Nathan. And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 12, Nathan approaches David, and instead of just addressing his sin directly, he comes up with a parable. And he talks about basically the same exact story of, of David and Bathsheba, but instead he uses different characters. And he says, David, in your wisdom, in your judgment, what should we do with this individual? And David thinks that she should receive the harshest of punishments. And Nathan says, that person is you. And David immediately receives this conviction in his heart for all of the sin, for all of the cover-up. And that's why we have Psalm 51 right here. It's important to note, Nathan delivers the message, but he tells David, you will not die. The Lord will actually pass over your sins, which is radical. It's crazy. It's outrageous. But he says, the sword will never depart from your house, David, and the baby will die. And we see David's life play out this way, where the sword never passes from his house. He is, the rest of his life, he's on the run from his, even his own children, And Psalm 51 allows us to see David's response. It allows us to get an inward picture of his response to being confronted by Nathan. So here's what I want to do. If you're a note taker, we're going to go through three main movements. When we talk about the Psalms, we talk about the primary movements of God through these Psalms. And so we're going to talk about three main movements. Okay, and the movements aren't necessarily going to go by verse by verse because there's a lot of repetition in what David is doing here in Psalm 51. But real quick, quickly, the first movement is going to be David's confession. The second movement is going to be David's hope. And then the third movement is going to be David's choice. So David's confession. First thing I want you guys to see here is a little bit of math, just some numbers for you to illustrate how deep David is going with his confession and his awareness of his sin. The repetition is astounding. David refers to himself using pronouns of me, I, or my over 30 times in just 19 verses. He is pointing the finger directly at himself. And if you're anything like me, Anytime I've ever been confronted with sin, very few times have I just simply received it. Many times when I'm confronted by sin, called out, I'm immediately defensive. I have all these circumstances and reasons why I'm committing the sin as if it can be justified. There is no justifiable sin in the eyes of the Lord. And so we see here David is owning it. He's owning his sin. I think verse... Um, verse 3 probably gives us the best illustration for this. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He can't get away from it. He's, 
he's so fixated on the guiltiness and the shame that he has for his sin. And then we see it kind of progressing here in his confession. In verse 5, we see the severity of his sin, how deep it goes. So far, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David's going way beyond a moment here. He's going way beyond Samuel chapter 11 and 12 here. He's, he's now going way, way back, and he's saying, My flesh is sinful. I was born with sinful desires. And I think that's so important for us that we realize in the way that we, we deal with our sin and we confess it, that it's not just surface level. It's not just what happened this week in your life. It's like a root system. Um, and quick illustration for you guys. A few years ago, uh, we decided to do some landscaping in our backyard. And... Um, what we're going to do is, is take out all these different shrubs and bushes, and there was one tree in particular, not a big tree at all, it was probably only like a foot in circumference, and it was maybe about 12 feet tall, so not a really big tree at all. I thought I could handle it. I couldn't, uh, is, the, is the summary there, but I couldn't handle this tree, okay? It was 12 feet tall, I thought I could handle it, but I couldn't. So I, I'm cutting off the branches, I am cutting it down to get down to that stump, and once I get down to that stump, I'm like, all right, let me get my shovel. I'm just going to dig around it. Again, just one foot, one foot circumference. And I'm going to pop this, this out, and we'll be done, and we'll be able to smooth out the ground and lay the sod. It'll be this nice, grassy, lush area for our backyard for our kids to play in. I already had it pictured. And instead, I got maybe two, three hours into the shovel, and I was like, the shovel's not going to get it done. I got my neighbor's pickaxe, and I started working at it. And I think it probably took me, I don't know, several days and about a six-foot circumference just hole in my backyard to get this whole root system out, right? Because the surface level, the tree, was just small. It wasn't that big, right? We've got trees that are like 50, 60, 70 feet tall in our backyard that I would never imagine that I could touch with that, right? But I thought this one I could totally handle. And I couldn't imagine, I couldn't believe how big the root system was, how deep it went, how sprawling it was. And that's what it's like with our sin. That's what David's saying here. On the surface level, he's got some things that he needs to deal with, that he needs to confess, that he needs forgiveness from. But actually, if you go down deep, you see that there is a problem that goes way deeper than just a few sins. It's not just surface level. It goes a lot deeper than just some branches or a stump. And until we understand the depths of our sin, the damage it causes, where it come from, we will, comes from, we will never truly be broken over it. And that's David's goal here, right? It's true brokenness. Not just that he would go through the motions. Hold on to that true roots illustration because I'm going to go back to it here in a moment. But I do want to point out in David's confession, this is not just a religious ritual. Okay? So many times in, um, in Hebrew culture, you commit your sins, you go, you confess them to the priest, and you offer sacrifice, right? And then that sacrifice is pleasing to God, and you're, you're forgiven for your sins. But David is not 
um, is not going to just take this sin to a priest. He wants to go way deeper. So let me show you a couple of what I, things, what I mean here. Verse 6, he says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. David acknowledges what, really, what God is really requiring of us, not merely confessing of our sins, but purity and truth all the way deep down in our souls. Second, if you look at verses 16 and then 19, verse 16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. So in verse 16, David's saying, God, you would not be pleased with just my normal ritual sacrifice for my sin, for the depth of my sin. But then if you skip down to 19, he says, then will you delight in right sacrifices. So something changes there in David's heart. What's going on? Verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifices. Verse 19, you will delight in right sacrifices. Well, what makes a sacrifice right? I skipped over verse 17 on purpose. There it is. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. David is not just going through the motions. He's seeking true repentance. And what does true repentance look like? Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Until we are truly just broken over our sin, until we understand the devastating consequences that it has in our own hearts, not just outwardly, but inwardly in our own hearts, what it does to separate us from God, unless we are truly broken over that and the separation that it causes, we will never experience true repentance in our lives. We're very intentional about this repentance, right? At Grace, we even we had Zach Hicks come back in June. If you guys missed this talk back in June, I encourage you. Um, hopefully, we'll get that posted and you can listen to it. It's it's an amazing study, not just to gathered worship and how the patterns that we go through of repentance, but if you guys didn't know, we walked through those where you hear God's word declared, you confess your sin, you receive assurance of pardon. And then you respond in praise to God. And in that pattern, you see that same pattern here in Psalm 51. You see it over and over again in our worship services. The thoughtfulness and intentionality from Joel or John and Laurel and Smith and Jeremy and the way that our services are are put together. That we would hear God's word declared. That we would respond by confessing our sin. That we would hear that God has made a way for us. And that we would respond in praise. And that's what we see here continually. I don't know about you guys, but for me, and I didn't do it this one uh, because I'm preaching. So I had to take that moment of silent confession and really go deep so that I could sit here and in earnest say that I did that to you guys, with you guys. But there are so many weeks where we get to that silent moment of confession. And I have every intentionality of, of confessing sin and really being thoughtful about it. But then my mind wanders, and I'm like, I wonder if the kids made it to the back. Should I get up and check? Well, that would be distracting. I don't want to do that. I wonder what we're having for dinner tonight. 
Did we talk about it yet? Maybe I should check with Christina. What if somebody comes up to us and asks us to go out to dinner? Do we say yes? Do we say no? And then before you know it, it's like, receive this word of assurance from First, you know, Corinthians, and you're like, oh no, I missed it. And, um, and, and I, I just confess to you that that happens uh, in, my own, in my own heart and in my own life. But what Zach was trying to get through to us is not just our gathered worship to be a pattern of repentance, but that every day of your life is to be lived in this pattern of repentance. And at first glance, that sounds like a hard thing, right? To constantly have to be thinking about my sin. But it's not really that. It's making sure that you can understand the depths of God's mercy and grace in your life. The amount of love that he has shed on us. We can't really truly understand that and appreciate it until we understand the depths of our sin. So to go through this motion will get us to a moment of praise. Again, I will confess, there are not every moment in my life where I feel like praising God. There's not every moment in my life where I want to open my lips and declare his praise. Sometimes we need a verse um, 15. Oh Lord, open my lips. We need God to bring it to us. But all of that starts, the praise, getting there, all starts with understanding what God wants from us, who he is, confessing our sin, hearing the assurance, and praising him. And that's where David's hope comes from. And that's where we're moving forward here. That was confession, now we're going to David's hope. Which might be the most amazing part of this psalm as we go through this progression. And we'll start at the very beginning. Note in verse 1. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to what? Not the great things that, that David has done, not the fact that he is king of Israel. According to your steadfast love. So David's appeal from the very beginning His hope is not in anything that he has done or even could do. His hope is completely wrapped up in the promises of God. Steadfast love is is a term, a phrase that I'm sure you guys are familiar with here at Grace. And we've covered it quite a few times. But just to, to cover it once again, steadfast love of God is his covenant with his people, with you and me, to always love and protect us. And in this promise, we know that God will always find a way. Always, always, always find a way to care for his people, to forgive them, to wash them, to make them clean again. And that's David's basis for his appeal. In his confession, his hope is found not in anything that he's done or could do, but is found squarely and wholly on God's character and his promises. He goes on and says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And he goes on and on to ask for washing, for cleansing, for blotting out for his, in various his sins, his transgressions, his iniquities. He's covering as much as he possibly can. And then we see in verse 7 an interesting term, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Here's the interesting thing about hyssop. It's a, um, it's a, it's a plant and it's, it's commonly used uh, for Hebrew ceremonial cleansing. So it wouldn't be abnormal at all 
for David to mention hyssop as an illustration for needing cleansing from God. The priest would use hyssop in various ways, um, and in, in particular in dipping it in blood to declare something clean. But in Exodus chapter 12, you actually see a very specific moment where hyssop is used. As God is giving instruction to Moses, as Moses gives instructions to his people to sacrifice a Passover lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and to put it over a doorpost so that God would pass over you, so that his, he would have grace and mercy on you as he, do, as he delivers his judgment upon his people. And guess what was used to apply the blood on the doorways? Hyssop. Hyssop was the plant that was used to take the blood from the lamb and put it on the doorpost. And David is saying, I need a Passover type of work from God in my heart. And then if that wasn't enough, we see the presence of Jesus all over this psalm in verse 10 where he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's hope is in a, a, a miraculous event from God and a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. It's amazing. The, the use of the word create here is huge. David is not continuing his language of, I need you to clean me, God. He doesn't ask for his heart to be cleaned. He doesn't ask for his, um, his transgressions to be wiped away from his heart. He says, this heart is no good anymore. I need a new one. And note, from this verse on, verse 10 on in this psalm, there's nine more verses. Not one, once more does he ask for cleansing. This request of God to create a brand new heart It's exactly what he needs, and it's exactly what we need. One more illustration for you guys. When I was studying this passage, particularly verse 10, this story kept on coming up in my mind. When I was about 18 years old, senior in high school, uh, my dad and I were on a kind of a road trip together, and we were going from Americus, Georgia, uh, to, to Birmingham, America's where I did most of my growing up. And so we were in Birmingham to visit Sanford, where I was going to go to college. And so we, we visited the school, and then instead of my dad coming back with me, he flew to Texas to spend some time with my grandparents, had some things to take care of in Texas, where my grandparents lived. And, and I was given the privilege, responsibility to drive his car back home to Americus. So um, I'm, I'm heading down 280, and I'm going through Childersburg, Sylacauga, Alexander City, Columbus, you know, all the great cities of the South. And that last, last stretch from Columbus to Americus on 280 is just like nothing but winding roads and farmland. It's just incredibly boring, and, and here I am making excuses, but um, no excuses. Somewhere between Columbus and Americus, I wrecked my dad's car. And thank the Lord it was a single car wreck, but when I say I wrecked my dad's car, I, I wrecked it. Like, it flipped, the car flipped multiple times when the paramedics got there and they saw the vehicle. They, they wanted to rush me immediately to the hospital. They wanted to like cut off my clothes. Apparently there's protocol for that. I was like, no, you're not cutting my clothes off. I'm good. Um, but 
the car, you know, we were waiting to get the report back from the car, like what work it needed or what would the insurance check look like, all those things. And it came back and it was just like, the car is totaled. It's done. There's, you need a new car. Uh, and I just remember getting that news and, and uh, feeling a sense of relief. I don't really know why, but I, I felt this sense of relief that the car was totaled. I think it was because I didn't want um, there to be all this work that needed to be done on the car. And, and then my dad get the car back, and it's, it's not a new car, right? It's, it's this car that I've wrecked, so that anything that ever goes wrong with it again, my dad will instantly be reminded of the mistake I made, of all the work and the frustration of having to get this car back ready again. And it was just such a relief to know it's done. This car is done. You need a new one. And not the point of the story at all, but he ended up getting a Lexus, and it was like the best car he'd ever had in his life. And so... That's the Lord's work, right? Um, just kidding. Um, but that's, that's our hearts, right? That's, that's how it is with our sin. Our sin completely wrecks our hearts. They're totaled. There isn't just one kind of thing wrong with them. There isn't a tweak here or there that can get our hearts just right before God again. They're done. My heart, your heart, all of our hearts. And that's why we need a new one. You heard Laurel earlier tonight proclaim from 2 Corinthians where Paul says it like this, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Our Lord Jesus Christ says it like this in John chapter 3, you must be born again, born of water and the Spirit. So we see here that David's hope isn't in just a cleansing His hope is in the miraculous work of Jesus Christ to give him a brand new heart. Our unrighteousness for Jesus' righteousness. Jesus' cleansing blood. His full and final sacrifice. God made a way for David and God has made a way for you and I. And that is all our hope is Jesus. Lastly, David's choice. So we've covered David's confession, David's hope. Here's David's choice. David is making a very intentional choice here in this psalm, and I want us to be able to see it. And it's in a couple of verses, and one in particular that's pretty, um, I don't know what I'd say. It's controversial. So if you look at verse 4 with me, verse 4 says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now we know this psalm is coming directly from what happened with David and Bathsheba. It would be pretty hard to say that David's sin was just against God and God alone, right? What about the adultery? What about the murder of Uriah? What do you think about the families that he's destroyed along the way? What about his own family that's been destroyed? It's outrageous that that David would say that his sin is against God and God alone. But I don't think David is trying to discount the way he has wronged the people and destroyed the families in his life. 
I think what he's really trying to do is go much deeper, like we talked about earlier. He's trying to get to the root of his sin. David's lust, his coveting, his adultery, his murder, his lying, they're all symptoms of a deeper issue. And all the things that we struggle with and the sins that we have in our lives are part of a deeper issue. So back to the tree illustration just real quickly. I could have and was tempted to just cut off the branches, cut down the stump as far as I possibly could, and then just lay the sod. And it would have been beautiful from afar. Couldn't really go to it, but from afar it would look like a beautiful, lush, green backyard. But it would have caused so many other problems. The grass would be all bumpy where the roots are. The stump would probably start growing new branches. And before you know it, I have another tree growing right in the middle of my yard again. I'm so glad in retrospect that I dug as far as I could to get that whole massive root ball out before I finished landscaping the backyard. It was hard and painful and frustrating, but it was so much better in the long term. And that is what David is doing here. He's going deeper than the branches, deeper than the stump. He's going as deep as he possibly can to discover that at the root of his sin, the root of his sin is against God. In that moment of lust, in that moment of adultery, in that moment of cover-up, he was choosing the world over the Lord. I was sitting in Panera earlier this week and ran into a friend and sat down and I was discussing Psalm 51 from him, trying to glean as much wisdom as I, I could from all, from all angles in preparation for, for tonight. And um, he mentioned a book that he had been reading that discusses the ways that we deal with sin. And that popular attempt at, at how we deal with our sin um, is to avoid sinning by holding our sin in contempt. And I'm paraphrasing here, but... The idea is that by being in opposition to our sin, being determined and exercising great discipline, that we could accomplish our goal of not committing that particular sin again. And that's one way we can do it, right? We can set up parameters. We can set up boundaries. We can say, I'm not going to do this again. And these are all the ways that I'm going to keep myself from doing this thing again. But, he said... It's much more effective to deal with our sins by instead expressing curiosity of why we are ever tempted to commit that sin in the first place. And I think he's right. By asking ourselves the why and what questions, why do we desire that thing? What are we trying to fulfill in our lives by pursuing that thing? We find that the thing we were pursuing ultimately did not fulfill our desire. It was fleeting. It eventually leaves us empty. But by expressing curiosity and digging deeper with these questions, we will arrive at a place where we see the desires that we have, the desires that I have, the deeper desires of joy, of belonging, of being loved, of having purpose, can only be truly fulfilled in God. And that is what David is getting at when he's trying to address the depths of his sin. And at the root, the depth is a choice that we are making. In that moment, 
of sin. We are choosing the things of this world instead of God. That's what it is. And God is saying in verses, or sorry, David is saying in verses 11 and 12, I choose you, God. I don't want to choose those things anymore. Verses 11 and 12, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. David is saying, I choose you. Understand that repentance is not just turning away from your sin. It's not just turning away or abstaining from something. Ultimately, it's turning towards something that is far better, much better. It's saying, God, I want you more than the things of this world. Romans tells us that it's in God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It is the realization that he is better than anything that this world has to offer. I grow weary. I don't know about you, but I grow weary of trying to find satisfaction in things of this world that I continue to be disappointed in over and over again. But Jesus offers us something far better. He offers forgiveness, abundant life, and eternity with him. But maybe you need to taste and see that he is good. That's why Jesus invites us to this table here. At this table, we find simple wine and simple bread, but they represent the forgiveness and provision that can only be found in Christ. So we are going to take a moment to respond and be invited to receive from Jesus.